Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we continue a sermon series that we began some weeks ago called Asking for a Friend, Honest Questions for God. And each week in this series, we are responding to a a difficult question. A question, if you're a follower of Jesus, you may have had for some time and just haven't known how to respond. A question that if you don't consider yourself a person of faith, may be the kind of question that you've had that's been the barrier and obstacle for you to consider even embracing a faith. And our desire each week is to offer a Christian response that I just want to acknowledge is not all-encompassing. We can't address every facet of every one of these questions. It would take weeks to do that. And so my hope is that we'll give a response that is thoughtful and helpful, but that will spur on additional learning, additional exploration, and even more so additional conversation among one another and among your relationships in your life where these questions are very real. So I'd encourage you to go back, if you've missed some, to our podcast or our YouTube channel, PCTRNJ, and you can, you can catch up on what you've missed. But this morning, I'm just going to jump right into the question that we're going to address today. The question is this, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? How can God be a judge who would send anyone that he created to that eternal torment? And in the Bible, that hell is described in all sorts of ways, it's described as the place of utter darkness, a place where those who are there are weeping and there is gnashing of teeth. It's a place of torment and agony of fire. And I'm not sure that all of these images are intended to give us the actual description, but to help our finite minds wrap, the, wrap around what is ultimately eternal to try to grapple with the gravity and dreadfulness of eternal agony and torment. How can a loving God judge so harshly and send anyone to this? As I move into this this morning, I want to affirm from Ezekiel 18 what God says about this situation. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. No pleasure in the temporal death. No pleasure in the eternal death of anyone. And for some who struggle with the faith, or Christian faith in particular, because Christians crammed hell down your throat, I'm sorry. Because it seems like some so-called Christians delight in the doctrine and reality of hell. But God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. And neither should we. And so this morning, we're going to make a case for hell, not just the reality of hell and what it is, but for God to be loving, in fact, there needs to be hell. And so we're going to jump into that through the lens of Luke chapter 16, and I invite you to hear, these are the words of Jesus. If you'd like, you can read and follow along on the screens, or you can just listen for God's word to us this morning. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if, you do not listen, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we try to grapple with eternal things this morning, I recognize my finiteness, our finiteness. So will you send your spirit to be the one to teach, guide. If there's anything that is not of you that is said or heard this morning, may you cause it to be forgotten that all that is left is true and from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus is telling a very potent story that on the surface is pretty easy to understand. There's two men, they both die, and one of them is brought to Abraham's side, or literally his bosom. It's a picture of heaven. The other is sent to Hades, which is one of the New Testament words for hell. There's Hades and there's Gehenna, both Greek words, and they have some different nuances in terms of their historical meaning, but the reality is there's not enough differentiation to say this is that and that is something else, it's probably a better understanding to say that they're both used to help continue to flesh out a full picture or at least a more complete picture of what hell is all about, what it's really like. And in this story, we get the affirmation that the man who's in Hades is in torment, agony in the fire. And this story is unique to Luke. It's actually... The only story, some commentators have noted, that in which Jesus gives a character in his parable a name. And isn't that interesting? It's the only place where there's a name given. The rest of the time, the characters are nameless. It's a landowner, it's a servant, it's a farmer, it's something else. In this story, there's two men. One's given a name, Lazarus. And this gives us something significant and important to understanding this parable, to get to its core meaning. We're supposed to contrast the two men. And so what do we know about Lazarus in this story? Well, clearly he's poor. He's unhealthy. He has open sores that even dogs are coming around and licking. And and that's just gross in and of itself. But there's an added problem. Dogs were unclean in the Jewish faith, so this man became unclean. So he was no longer able to worship in the temple. He was a religious outcast in addition to being an an economic outcast. He was clearly desperate for help every day and yet got none. He was on the margin of society and rejected. 
And in contrast to Lazarus, we get the unnamed rich man, who we're told very clearly is wealthy. He lives a life of luxury wearing purple linen, which was extremely expensive. He ate well, and he was living securely within his gated compound, keeping the riffraff on the outside. Lazarus would have been happy to eat crumbs from the man's table, but the man gave him nothing. He could have done something, but he doesn't. And really, this sets up, as we contrast these two men, it sets up two primary issues that are at the heart of this story and, I think, that are critical to our understanding of what Jesus is getting at in this parable about hell. And just as a side note, Jesus teaches about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. And so we try to reject the idea of hell maybe on the notion that Jesus is meek and mild and loving, but he was the one that gave us the most about it. And it... it, this raises these two issues that are, about, that are critical to our understanding of hell. One is our heart's desires, and the other is justice. And when we think about the heart's desires in this story, it's clearly the rich man's desires, his heart's desires, that are in view, and actually even furthermore on trial, if you will. I'm told that the man cries out to Abraham, Father Abraham, will you, will you send Lazarus just to have his finger dipped in some cool water and touch the tip of my tongue. Give me some relief. And Abraham replies, yeah, no. And remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. Lazarus received bad things. You received your good things. Not good things in general. Abraham's not saying that what you received was the good life. And Lazarus got the bad life. He wasn't saying that the good things that you, we should all aspire to are status and luxury and wealth and comfort. He's saying those were your good things. Those were the things that you considered ultimately good. And in your life, you received them. Those things that you desired the most. You desired wealth. You desired comfort. You desired prestige. You desired priority and prominence and status and recognition. And you got it every single day. Your heart's desire fulfilled. The thing you wanted most, you had. Augustine, St. Augustine, as he's also known, lived a, a few hundred years after Jesus. He came to faith at the age of 31, and he had this incredible mind, and he, he became a pastor. And in, in his writing on Christian doctrine, he describes sin as disordered love. He actually says this, he says, living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a less or greater love for things that should be loved equally. Now, don't get caught up in the greater than, less than, or equal than. It's not a math lesson here. What Augustine is getting at is he saying, we are created ultimately to love. We're created in the image of God who is, in fact, a loving God. And so we are to love, but we're to love things and people in a certain order. There's a hierarchy, if you will, to our loves that puts our lives on a right and proper foundation, a foundation that is ultimately best for us. And so Augustine argues that, yes, we're made to love God, and actually we're made to love God above all else. That's the first and priority. To give God all of our devotion, all of our loyalty, to look to him for meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and ultimate acceptance. Everything else is to come underneath that love of God. 
So we're not supposed to love those things underneath God more than God. We're not supposed to love God less than those things that are underneath God. Enough of the lesson greater there. Because you understand. And, and so Augustine would read this parable and he would comment on this parable is something like this. He'd say, this, this rich man's loves are out of order. The things that he desires in his heart are disordered. They're not the way they're supposed to be. And the problem with disordered loves is that they will always leave us wanting more. Always. In his autobiographical work, Confessions, Augustine reflects actually on the things in his life, things that are really good and wonderful, things that we would appreciate and he appreciated. Family, friends, acts of, of service and kindness, all these things that are rightly considered good. He says this, he says, in all such things, let my soul praise you, O God, my creator, creator of all things, but let it not cleave too close in love to them through the senses of the body. For they go their way and are no more, and they rend the soul with desires that cannot destroy it, for it longs to be with the, one, with the things it loves and to repose in them or to rest in them. But in them is no place of repose because they do not abide. See, Augustine is saying that even those things in our lives that are worthy of thanksgiving, that are good, that are worthy of love, the achievements for the good of even the greater good, the wonderful relationships that we would share in their lives, the thing is these things will not abide. They will not blast. They are fleeting. And the soul longs to cling to the things that it loves. It longs to have those things fill us up, to overwhelm us, to sustain us and deeply satisfy us. And Augustine was saying, don't let me love those good things more than I should because they won't last. And we know that when we look at our own lives, don't we? If we take an honest assessment of our loves, I mean, if our greatest desire of our heart, if our deepest desire is to acquire money and things, we know it won't last. We know that it won't satisfy. We can get some and we can always want more. And the more we get, there's always more to be had. And we know we can't take it with us when we go. If our deepest heart's desire is beauty, man, that's fleeting. We all get old. Status, fickle, it comes and goes. Affirmation, respect, loyalty, affections even of the people in our lives. They can be given, but they can be taken away. And ultimately, those people will leave us or we will leave them. If our deepest desire is success, it cannot be sustained because failure comes right behind it. If our deepest desire is family, it cannot sustain. As wonderful a gift as family is, Man, if it's the most important thing to us, if it's the deepest desire of our heart and our loves, man, we will be crushed when our family is taken from us or we are taken from them. And so we can go on and on and on and anything that is the deepest desire of our hearts is going to ultimately leave us. It is not going to abide. And so it is a disordered love to put that place in the deepest part of our heart. And this man's deepest desire was for, for wealth and status and luxury. And man, now it's left him. And this all relates to the idea, the reality of hell. It gives us this picture because in this man's life, he had the deepest desire of his heart. And his life after death was in complete continuity with his life before he had died. And his life on earth ended, his soul continued on, but his loves remained disordered. In life, he had been separated from God because he had put these things above his love for God. In death, he was continuing to be separated from God. 
And we see that in this great chasm. That the thing that could have carried him across the chasm, God himself, even in the story, he doesn't even ask for it. He still doesn't want God. He is in torment and agony, and it's clear the deepest desire of his heart is not God himself. It's simply some relief from the agony that he's experiencing. It is in complete continuity with his life before death. And yet it is agony for him. But it was his deepest desire. Pastor Kim, Tim Keller Notes this, he says, hell is our freely chosen identity based on something besides God going on and on forever. Which is what this man is experiencing. And he actually fleshes this out even further, trying to help us understand and grapple with this idea through the lens of addiction. So often, people end up on a road of addiction because they're trying to find deep meaning or satisfaction or relief or cope with stress or pain or hurt. And so they reach for whatever it would be. And for a moment, experiences satisfaction. For the moment, that love that they long for, it's realized. And yet, it's fleeting. And so they go back to it. And they go back to it. And they go back to it. And yet, they can never get enough of it. It is a constant pursuit. And in the pursuit of that thing that is always avoiding them, always eluding them, it leads to total destruction. Destruction of their relationships, destruction of their sense of self, of their identity, of their dignity, of their self-worth, of their relationship in every capacity. Is this not agony? Is this not torment? Is this not fire within the soul? And this is hell in continuity, going on forever and ever. Ultimately, God is going to give us our heart's greatest desire. And so if we long for him, he will give it. And if we long for something else, he gives that too. C.S. Lewis, thinking about these issues, says this. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end... Thy will be done. And it's just and it's right for God to give us what we want most. And if so if it's not him, then it's to let us have it. I mean, we were talking about this in our staff meeting this week, and, and someone raised the, the question, I mean, if God didn't just give us what we wanted, wouldn't God just be a tyrant if he forced himself upon us? If we don't really want God, would that just be wrong to drag us kicking and screaming to an eternity in heaven with him? I mean, just think about it in your own lives. Think about forcing yourself on someone who continues to turn you away to say no and back off and sets a boundary and you just keep encroaching and forcing. God doesn't force himself that way. It makes sense. And so it's just and it's right for God to give us the deepest desire of our heart and that can be hell itself. This, but this also raises another issue of justice. Because in this passage, remember, we're contrasting Lazarus with the rich man. And the rich man he could have done something about Lazarus' suffering and oppression. And he has no grounds to claim ignorance. Because, did you see, as the story plays out and he's there crying out to Abraham, he says, Abraham, send Lazarus to bring me some relief. Wait a second. He recognized Lazarus. He knew his name. He knew him in life. He knows him in death. He knew that he was outside his gate every single day. 
So he can't claim any sort of ignorance. As a matter of fact, he reinforces his position, his feeling of superiority over Lazarus. Yes, send him like a servant to me. Send him as one who's lesser than. Send him one as one who is, it does not have the dignity of a, a whole human. Send him to me to serve and relieve my pain. And so, God, in this moment, judges justly. In the end, there will be judgment. And God is a God of justice, and there will be just judgment. The rich man is held accountable for turning his head. And Lazarus is given grace and relief and restoration from his oppression. See, Hell is a result of God's holiness and perfect judgment. There will be justice someday. And don't we need a God of justice today? Do we not need a God who is just when we look at the world? If if there is not hope that there will be just judgment, then this whole thing that is our life and existence seems to me like a totally helpless train wreck. Because we don't have to look very hard to see evil and oppression and injustice. And we know it's wrong. As little children, we know it's wrong. We cry out for justice from our earliest days. There is something put in us, hardwired in us. We know it's wrong when somebody takes the toy away from us. We know it's wrong when we see someone else on the playground being picked on, being isolated, being abused. We know. We may still participate in it because we have some disordered loves. But we know it's wrong. And God is a God who is just, and our sense of justice comes from being made in the image of the one who is just. And man, there is a need for justice in the world. When I think about the realities of child abuse and sex trafficking and rape and murder and what's going on in Afghanistan right now, and the list goes on and on and on, man, we need a God who is just. Because if not, the evil that we see rampant in the world gets to go on and on with no consequence, no ramifications. But if there is a God who is just, then there is hope. It may not happen in our lifetime, but there will be justice served. And he will bring it. And here's here's an amazing part about that reality. If God is the one who will bring justice, it means that you don't have to. And I don't have to. It doesn't mean that we don't work for justice because God is just and we're made in his image and so we should be working for just systems and we should be working for right organizations of societies. Absolutely. But it means I don't need vengeance. I don't need, I don't need revenge. I don't need retribution. I can actually forgive. I can, as Jesus said, even love my enemies, pray for those who persecute me because I don't, they don't have to deal with my anger and wrath. I don't have to be the one to exact justice. God will do it for me. And so I am free from having to carry that burden of bitterness and anger all the days of my life. Because God is going to say, no, it's not okay, and he's going to take care of it. And so this this reality of hell becomes then a source of hope, particularly in the face of injustice. It's a source of hope. Unless I look in the mirror, then it becomes problematic because I look in the mirror and I, I, I see my own sin. I see my own complicity. I see my own tendency towards self-interest rather than for those who are hurting and marginalized and oppressed. Thomas Aquinas called sin inordinate self-love. And I look at myself and I go, yeah, I, I have a whole lot of that, an inordinate self-love. 
And this is part of how we can, we can ask the question or we can, we can wrestle with this. Well, I can see how you know, this man, this rich man, man, he's terrible. Yeah, he should go to hell. But what about me? I'm, I'm good people. And what about other good people? Yeah, but are we really that good? Because Jesus says very clearly, it's not just about our outward deeds. He says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the Pharisees had, I mean, their lives looked good. On the outside, it was all right, and it's in its proper place. But on the inside, on the inside, there was this air of superiority and self-righteousness looking down their nose at everybody else and disdain for all of these lesser mortals that were just, ugh. And I just look at our own lives. I mean, look around. Think about yourself for a second. Is there any of that possibly in you? I just look at our political climate. And there's a huge divide. We know that. But when you think about those who are on the other side of the aisle from you, are you disagreeing on issues? Are you actually tackling the things that matter? Or is it the person? We're looking down our nose. If You may hate Donald Trump. You may hate President Biden. You may hate Nancy Pelosi. You may actually be harboring in your heart hatred. Even as you fight for what you think is right and good, there is in that a self-interest and an inordinate self-love that I'm better than them. Thank God I'm not like that. And Jesus says, man, even the good within us can often be so self-interested. And we can see that in our, our day-in, day-out relationships. Do we love being good? Do we love serving other people? Do, do we love because it's the right thing to do, because they're worthy of just being served? Or is there something in it for me? I'm not sure I've ever had a fully selfless motive in my life. Because there's always a little bit of it in there for me. If nothing else, I feel pretty good about myself when I do good things. There's this self-love, greater than the love of God, greater than the love of being good. And Jesus goes on and he says, yeah, but in, in chapter 7 of Matthew, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you which is exactly what this rich man is experiencing. Every single day, he could have gotten up and he could have crossed the great chasm of religious divide, of economic divide, uh, of class divide. He could have crossed the great chasm and he could have interceded and brought relief for Lazarus. And every single day, he chose self-love. And in, in this picture of life after death, there is a great chasm. And now the measure is being used against him that no, even Lazarus cannot cross the great divide, cannot cross the chasm to bring relief to him in eternity. In the same measure that is used, that we use of others will be used against us. The chasm cannot be crossed. And so we find in this story that hell is the place where uh, possibly our our disordered loves, the disordered desires of our heart are fully realized where God justly sends us for our inordinate self-love, for our contribution to sin and injustice in the world. But hell, in this picture, hell also, and this may be the hardest part of all, shows us how loving God really is. How can there be a loving God? And it's because there is hell. We see this as Lazarus is there in his agony. He cries out to to Abraham, okay, I get it. It's not going to work out for me. So go and send Lazarus back, still ordering Lazarus around. It's amazing. Send Lazarus back to my brothers so that they don't experience what I'm experiencing now. And Abraham says, no, not going to do it. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Yeah, but if somebody comes back from the dead, if somebody rises from the grave, then they'll believe. And Abraham's like, no, they won't. 
Because even resurrection is not enough to change, to reorder their loves, to change their hearts from the inside out. I mean, think about it. The resurrected Jesus, some believed, some didn't. And I think if I came face to face with the resurrected Jesus, I think my response would probably be awe, fear, and terror. And would that cause me in a moment to kind of whip myself into shape? Maybe, maybe I could reorder my loves for a moment, for a day, for a while. Maybe I'd just become a puddle on the ground. But to really, that, that doesn't breed in me love and affection and the love for God that I was made for. That puts fear, puts reverence, perhaps they're appropriate to the holy presence of God, but we're made to love. And so if we're going to be loving, if we're going to love God the way we're made to, we have to actually not just know that Jesus has risen from the dead, not just encounter a resurrected Jesus, not the fact of resurrection, it's to know why he died and rose. And the reason Jesus died was because of my disordered love. Because I keep putting things other than God at the top, above all things. It's because of my inordinate self-love, my complicity in injustice and sin that goes on and on in my life, my, my propensity to want to live life on my to- own terms, to get what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And Jesus came in because God, who is just, would give me exactly what I want. But he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone and has compassion. And so he sends his son to take on for us that reality of our disordered love, the reality of our inordinate self-love, and in the process to experience the brutality of torment, the agony, the physical, relational, spiritual forsakenness of the son from the father, brutality of hell itself, the fire and the agony from within so that we don't have to. And that's so that God can be both just and loving. Because my self-love and my disordered love demands justice and it gets it poured out on Jesus Christ the Son so that the loving God can also be loving and can offer to us life that is full and new and eternal life apart from the agony and torment and in his intimate presence with our loves reordered within us so that we enjoy and delight in the very presence of the glorious and loving God. Hell may be the, the exact deepest desire of our heart. Hell may be God's just response to our disordered love and inordinate self-love. But hell also reveals how loved you are that God himself would enter into it so that you don't have to. This is the hope. This is the good news of hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in our lives, when we look at ourselves honestly, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, and we reflect on what are our deepest desires, so often those are, are, are disordered. So often you're not above all. We look at our, our own self-interest. And so God, in this moment, we confess those to you. And we seek to turn, to turn back to you. Not just so that we avoid the agony and the torment, not just so we can get some sort of relief. But Lord, may you be work in our hearts that we would want to turn to you, to know you more fully, to love you more fully, to be loved by you. Lord, we thank you that your love is so on display, even as we consider the, the agony of hell. 
In Jesus' name, amen.